I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Shared memories are the building blocks of relationships. Family vacations, playing games together, going out for a night on the town. Building a common history with our loved ones is part of what brings us closer together. So when a parent or grandparent starts to lose their memory, it can feel like you've lost them, even though they're still there. Gavin Crawford has become very familiar with that feeling. Five years ago, his mother began to lose her memory to Alzheimer's. And while she may no longer remember their shared experiences, he still does. And he's telling those stories in his surprisingly funny new podcast, Let's Not Be Kidding. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Today on the show, we're listening to the best new and notable podcasts this month. If you're a regular CBC listener, you might know Gavin Crawford. He's a comedian and actor and host of CBC Radio's Because News. Growing up, Gavin and his mom were pretty much best friends. But recently, he realized he didn't talk about his mom very much anymore since she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. His new seven-part series, Let's Not Be Kidding, explores the journey of his mother's battle with dementia and tries to find comedy in the tragedy. He joins me now in studio in Toronto. Gavin, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Can you tell me a bit about what your mom was like as a person before Alzheimer's? Uh, yeah. I mean, the weird thing is I can now. <laughs> I don't know if I would have been able to like two years ago. Uh, that's one of the weird things about Alzheimer's is it really it really f- makes you focus on the person as they are like in the moment. And you start one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was I started to forget what my mom was like before what she was like when she had Alzheimer's. And she was very cool and funny. And she had a dark, wry sense of humor. And she was very fashion forward, especially for like living in Southern Alberta. She was, you know, she would always make it a point to like, you know, go to New York or Toronto and just find like whatever the cool thing was that was going to be coming to Lethbridge in three or four years and make sure that she had that. Uh, but she was also like baseline, like, a real champion of not just her kids, like, but any kids that she came across. She would adopt many strays. And, um, yeah, I mean, she was baseline just very kind and very funny. I worked her into my comedy a lot uh, or just talking about things that she did because she just was she was just very funny. She had a very funny way of, like, swearing. She taught me how to do this great trick that I use on Because News all the time to make them think the mics are out because she won't she won't swear. Like, she always says, like, she just self-censors, so she would be like, oh, you kids, like, get the out of my way. I can't stand you little sons of... And she would just drop it out, so... But I, now I can do that with anything, so I like to just... The mic is all the time. This show is very funny. I wasn't expecting it to be that funny. How challenging was it to bring humor into a show about Alzheimer's? In one way, it's hard. In another way, it's not hard at all, because that's how my brain interprets the world. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm always looking at everything 
from a sort of a funny angle. And there are a lot of funny things, terrible but hilarious. And I started to sort of think of this as like, well, what will it be? Well, I, I needed to write about it because it was in my head and it's in my head for a very long time. And you you kind of need to get it out because mm-hmm. also I had to write other comedy too. Uh, so I started to write it like maybe is it a stand-up show? What really is it? And it just kind of turned out that a podcast was like sort of the perfect place to marry those two things because, you know, if you're out there in front of a live audience and you sort of bring up you can't get into the jokes without saying, like, so my mom has Alzheimer's right now. And immediately the audience is like, oh, and they feel so bad for you. And you're like, no, I've been doing this for like a long. It's been a long time. I'm fine to joke about it. But they're not necessarily fine for you to joke about it. Right. Uh, so it just seemed like this was a kind of a a better venue because mm-hmm. I guess people, <laughs> they're listening. They could be slightly prepared. Like, it is going to be a little sad, but we're going to have jokes. Mm-hmm. And then the nice thing that I found was um, as we I didn't know what this podcast was going to be. I just knew I had to kind of talk about it as I was sort of like starting to talk about it more and more. I was running it by friends of mine and I realized I had a whole bunch of peers or friends like also in this industry who have comedy brains Mm -hmm. or entertainer brains who also had loved ones that had dementia or Alzheimer's and either were going through or are going through a similar thing. And I thought, what if I just bring them down into the studio and we just kind of trade stories about it? Because it'll be a... Then I have an audience to entertain, but it's a very receptive audience because they also are going through it at the same time. And then they can also entertain me. But I'm wondering how those conversations affected or did they affect the way that you relate to your mom, those conversations with friends who have also been affected by the disease? The thing I find dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's is no matter how much support you have, it's still very isolating because it is a bit sad to talk about and it's weird to talk about. And you you instinctively kind of don't want you don't want to bring it up at a party. <laughs> like You don't want to, like, bring everybody down about it. And, um, you know, and also just to know, great, I'm not the only one that's like stood beside the bed with a pillow being like, should I? Should I just now? And it's very dark, but I I kind of want to. Or like, you know, how frustrating it is, you know, to sit across from somebody and see in their eyes that they understand how frustrating it is when your loved one asks you the same question literally, you know, 20 times in 10 minutes. And it just, and it literally goes from, like, from the moment they pop open their eyes to the moment they go asleep. It's like, you know, do you remember so-and-so and And, you know you're like yep and literally one minute later hey I wonder if you remember so-and-so and And it it you feel bad because you get so angry it's like babysitting a very bad kid that won't go to bed and you just want to be like I want to choke this kid but you love them you have your family in this podcast we listen to them was it difficult to convince them to participate in this podcast oh yeah Oh, yeah? I mean, not because, mostly because everyone in my family is incredibly shy. Mm. Like, my mother was very shy. But do you classify yourself as shy as well? Yeah, I don't even know why I started doing what I do. (laughs) I I literally had no other skills, so I I became a comedian and an actor. But but often comedians are very shy, kind of offstage. But my family won't even order food through a drive-thru most of the time because they're too shy to talk to the speaker. So, 
you know, I, putting a microphone in front of any of my siblings, uh, I, I think only one of my siblings actually ends up being on the podcast because she was the only one that would like stay close enough to the microphone that I could actually use the audio because everyone else just backs away and then they start to sound like that. And you're like, well, this is totally unusable. Uh, so it was, it was a di bit difficult. The surprising thing was my father who, you know, we try to talk about what was going on, but he was really in the thick of it. And I was cautious to approach him like, you know, would he be able to sit down and kind of talk about it? And he actually did and was great. And he sounds just lovely and <laughs> as weird and funny and kind as my dad is in the podcast. But uh, that was surprising to me because I, I, I didn't know I would be able to get him to kind of open up about it. What did you learn about your mom while you were making this show? Did anything surprise you? There was a few things. Um, I learned that she wasn't quite as okay with me being gay and out as I thought she was to my face. But then with Alzheimer's, the weird thing that happens is sometimes they'll just start talking to you and you realize you're not you. So, you know, we would be sitting in the car and she would be like, well, I don't know if you know my son Gavin. And I'd be like, well, I, yeah, I, I, I think I do. And she'd be like, well, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but he lives in Toronto. Let's get this a guy. <laughs> I'm kind of rolling her eyes and I'm like, oh, Lord, I know what era we're in now. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, he's probably really happy. And she'd be like, yeah, you know, I, I just I worry about him. And, you know, he just is like sometimes he's just just is out there in gay plays and being so gay. And I'm just, you know, just I, I don't think I don't think everything he has to do is it has to be so gay. But. And you're like, I'm right here. You're telling me this. It's so weird. And then sometimes I would, you know, sort of take that to abusive advantage a little bit and be like, you know, what about, what about, I heard your one oldest, uh, <laughs> you know, and try to get her to spill some dirt on my siblings uh, and tape it. But then I never, I always deleted the tape. But yeah, so I learned that she was a little more worried, mostly not out of homophobia, just out of fear, I think, that, you know, a mother's fear that her kid wouldn't be able to succeed or do well. But I didn't know quite how worried she was mm. until she accidentally told me. <laughs> Everything that you're telling me is, is like you said, it, it has a darkness. And I'm just wondering, you know, but I'm laughing as you tell me these stories. I'm wondering how humor helps you cope with this situation in your mother's diagnosis. You, it's immeasurable. You can't, you cannot measure how much you need to laugh through these things because there it goes not only is it painful but it just goes on for a very long time it's like i you know i, I was maybe going to call the podcast like saying goodbye in the longest way possible because it is like you're like sort of bidding adieu like waving at a train station for like nine or ten years and it's moving like one millimeter at a time and you're like i can't keep waving this log it's so frustrating so you know to have people to laugh with and joke about it i mean uh, you know i started i think part of what twigged me is i was sitting a, a number of years ago i was in la and scott thompson i was sitting brunch with scott thompson from kids in the hall and his mother was going through dementia at the time and we sort of started trading stories like where i was like oh, my mom thinks kyle invented the christmas tree and 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 we were just laughing our our heads off because it's so weird like I came down one Valentine's Day and my mom I said happy Valentine's Day and then she was like well I suppose you'll be going to the dance and I was like what and then I realized like she thought I was like her high school sweetheart and she wanted me to ask her to the dance and it was insane and so funny 
But I was like, oh, I can't wait to get to work and tell this story. But then I started, I came to work and I started telling the story thinking it would be so funny. And I'm telling my bosses the story and I get to the part where I'm like, and then I'm just like, so I'm like, sure, I'll go to the dance. And I just burst into the most horrible, ugly cry right in the middle of the office. And I was like, one moment. And I had to run into the bathroom and like kind of collect myself. And I was like, we are going to pretend this never happened. Yeah. Wow. It's profound. What ultimately do you want people to take away from this podcast? A, if you're going through this or, you know, have been through this, lots of other people are, and it's okay to talk about it, and it's okay to make dark jokes. Uh, you know, everybody knows you're not literally wanting to murder your parents, <laughs> even though you maybe feel like you do. That's okay. And um, I hope it's entertaining for people. It's a little tribute to my mom, but also it's kind of a weird video game FAQ for anybody that's going through this journey or has know someone who's going through this process because you know it's like when you're playing a hard video game you can go here and be like is anyone else having trouble with this level is it just me like i cannot find the secret brick and then you it's comforting to look up online and be like oh and no one can find the secret brick i'm not alone it's amazing well on that note gavin thank you so much for joining me today and and telling this really poignant and and beautiful story thanks very much for having me Gavin Crawford is the host of Let's Not Be Kidding. We're going to listen to a little bit of that podcast now. This clip opens with a conversation between Gavin and fellow comedian Scott Thompson, whose mother also had Alzheimer's. Like, we know how much we loved our mothers and how emotionally close we were, but a camera following us would go, God, that's a cold relationship. You know what I mean? Like, the cameras wouldn't show that. But it's all those waters underneath the wasp glacier. Here's more with Scott Thompson. Are you the youngest? You're the youngest. Second oldest. You're the second oldest of all boys? Five. All boys. Five. Yeah, I for, you've got sisters, right? Yeah, I have three sisters and a brother. So, okay. Were you the favorite? My brothers say I was of hers. Mm-hmm. But it was balanced by being my father's least favorite. Yeah, same with me. Right? When you were growing up, how did she react to... Well, I mean, obviously, you're obviously a little gay boy. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You don't need to see my dad's super eight. You know, I was a little gay boy. Yeah, yeah I mean, me too. You know, I was like borrowing my mother's grad dress and running into the fields to, you know, <laughs> spin around to the sound of music soundtrack. <laughs> That's that the missing chapter from the uh, Who Has Seen the Wind? Yeah, <laughs> W.O. Mitchell's missing chapter. It's true. It's a very weird thing. I think maybe, and I don't know why, but I feel like maybe when you're gay. You're close to your mom in a certain way because they sense that they need to protect you. And my mom was very, you know, uh, protective of me when I was a kid. But I was also like, you know, I come home crying all the time because yeah. the scouts were mean to me. Or we played basketball. Or we I didn't yeah. want to do the father-son three-legged race at the church picnic. So I hid in a tree. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I hid in a tree. You hid in a tree. And in I was tree. in the tree above and this... Oh, but you this. climbed a tree? That's what boys do. Yeah, but this... Sorry, I shouldn't use that word. Yes, you should. This woman, this woman from our church, yep. my mom was pregnant at the time with my little brother, and my dad was looking around for me, and she's like, you know, this woman came up. I won't say her name, but let's call her Karen. Okay, Karen, yeah, okay. Uh, but, you know, Somehow Karen, that seems right. Karen comes up and is like, oh, Keith, like, you know, where's Gavin? Aren't you going to do the father-son... You know, three-legged race. <laughs> and my dad's sort of like, well, you know, I don't know. I can't find him. He's not around, but he's not really into that 
kind of stuff anyway. Because it would be tied to his father with yeah, the ropes. Yeah, it's like doing a sports. <laughs> sports. And so, but then Karen, mm-hmm. uh, I could hear her say to my dad, oh. well, I mean, Donna's pregnant. Who knows? Maybe this time you'll get a real son. And then just sauntered away. And my dad, I remember my dad just not knowing I was there, just kind of being like, ha ha, yeah. 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 And I just remember coming down out of the tree and going to my mother just like in unbelievable tears. Cause I'm like, how old were you? 10, nine, yeah. nine. But you knew. I was nine. You knew. Yeah, I knew. And then, but like just being like, dad doesn't think I'm a real son. And then my mother, oh, she <laughs> made a point to make that because my dad was friends with Karen's husband and mm-hmm. we had to occasionally go over to their house and my mother was not nice to that woman ever again. Wow. Like she barely... And my mother had a hard time being contrary and socially yeah. inappropriate. My mom but too. Whoa, did she ice out. <laughs> she iced... Well, <laughs> she that... iced Karen right out. Yeah. And I was like... Oh, I feel good for that. Yes. Thank you, Mom. When I was about... I guess seven or eight, maybe eight or nine years old, there was a teacher that she she was very awful to me. She hit me. Uh, she just terrible woman. And um, I was I always a, I was a chatty Cathy. I never shut up. And um, really, yeah, yeah. And she used to do this thing where if you didn't shut up, she'd put you in the cloakroom for the whole class. Kids right? these days have Cloak- no idea. No, they have no idea. Well, we used to get strapped. Yeah. And, and she would put me in the dark. For the whole day, the whole morning. I told my mother that I was being locked in the cloakroom, and she was, what? She marched down to the school and tore a strip off this woman. Go, Barbara. And she was (laughs) never mean to me again. And that was it for my mother. She said, you are not doing that to my boy. So that was definitely defending me. Because she knew the woman. She knew what that woman was doing and why she hated me so much. Yeah. She, She knew what she was seeing. I think it's a bit similar for Scott and I in that so much of who we are is tied up with the mothers that we had. And then you get to this interesting point where that relationship sort of ceases to exist, even though they still exist. And that can be strange. First of all is when they forget who you are. That's really, really difficult. But it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes it'll come back and they kind of know you are. Then you think, oh, no, it's, she's talking about a cousin or a brother or a farmhand or whatever. <laughs> and then my mom, when my mom, my mom was a very classy, very uptight wasp lady who, even though I think had a, a quite a deep sexual well, I mean, <laughs> but I always knew my mom loved men. My mom was a strange woman who loved men and women. I don't mean she was bisexual, but she had female friends and she had male friends, but she was very flirtatious. And she had, you know, they have these kind of um, firewalls where they don't say what they're, you know, the the dark stuff that's underneath it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of got broken down by the dementia. And so she started just throwing out things like, oh, I always loved it on the farm when it was time to breed the cows. They'd bring in that big bull. And my sister never liked to go watch it happen, but I love to watch it happen. And I'd be like, what? And she'd be doing this at dinner like, oh, the hired hands would come in and they would go get Barbara. And they called her Bob back then. Get Bob. She wants to see this. And she'd run to the barn to watch this cow be pimped out to all these lady cows. And she loved it and and she would just announce that or she'd go oh there was a hired hand that i i forget mom we we know about ernie and then it became then when she eventually went into a home 
it got really bad where she completely forgot who I was. But every time I would come in, she would say, oh, and who are you? And I'd be like, I I'm your son, Scott. And one day she goes, oh, Scott, I don't think you're my son. And I said, why, why is that? She goes, oh, you're far too old for to be my son. I'm much <laughs> too young to have a son your age. And I went, Mom, I'm, I'm 55. And she went, oh, I'm sorry. You look pretty bad for 55. <laughs> you must have had a hard life. <laughs> and I go, yeah, yeah, I did. I had a mother like you. But she put her hand on my thigh and stuff, and she just genuinely come on to me. And it was interesting. It's freaky. Yeah. Uh, freaky. And then once you start to see the comedy of it, it, it becomes less freaky. It's situations like the one Scott just described that really put you in an awkward position when you're dealing with a parent or a loved one who has Alzheimer's. Because on one hand, it's tragic and it's also weirdly hilarious. Sometimes you would, I would take my mom for a drive just to distract her. One time we were driving down to see the sea ice. We were in Cape Breton. Uh, and she kept asking me, what part of Toronto is this? But oftentimes during those drives, I would become other people and she would express certain disappointments in me to me. I remember her telling me with a little bit of concern that I didn't visit enough. Her son Gavin had moved to Toronto and he just never came back. You know, she saw him once in a while, but not enough. I guess that's what happens when you move to the city, she would tell me. You know, you just don't want to go back. And I would say, like, well, you know, you can't really blame him. She'd say, oh, no, I don't blame him. I'd like to live in Toronto where he is. But, you know, what am I going to do? Just leave? It's very weird to have your mother express disappointment in you to you. But, you know, welcome to Alzheimer's. From CBC Podcasts, that was Let's Not Be Kidding. It's hosted by Gavin Crawford. Their team includes David Carroll, Emily Quinnell, and Damon Fairless. The Iditarod is one of the most intense sporting events in the world. It's an annual sled dog race across Alaska through some of the harshest weather conditions on Earth. The route is nearly a thousand miles long and can take weeks for the participants, known as mushers, to finish. Kurt and Fleur Pirano were the first New Zealanders to complete the race. Since then, they've created a flourishing dog sled tourism business in their home country. But back in Alaska, they left a trail of broken promises, burnt bridges, and unpaid debts. In the newest season of the podcast Outside In, host Nate Hedgie steps inside the small but tight-knit world of competitive mushing to follow their trail. say my toes and hands are freezing right now. Very, very cold. It was my second morning at Duclock Kennels and temperatures were well below zero. The Huskies had spent the night outside with only a small doghouse to keep them warm, but they seemed just fine. The handler, Austin Sorum, was stuffing some hay into one house. All these guys are great in the cold weather. A couple of them, if it gets down to negative 30, negative 40, we'll bring them into the shop. 
you know, your older ones, your blue barbs, your carrots. But everybody else does just fine. Don't you hurry. Alaskan huskies don't look much like the huskies you see on Instagram. They're mutts. They have these short, dense coats. They come in all different colors and patterns. And they're not actually that big. Like, anything over 70 pounds would make for a husky husky. There's nothing in there, bud, but you can lick it clean, I guess. But they're also kind of like the superheroes of the dog world. Like that coat? It traps body heat so well that when snow falls on them, it doesn't melt. Oh, yeah. Hi, buddy. Hi. Do you need some attention? Their paws have an extra layer of fat and these incredible tightly wound vascular systems so their feet keep warm and toasty when they run. Running in cold weather is what these dogs are bred to do. Yep. They can easily cover more than 100 miles a day. And during a race, they'll burn around 12,000 calories. That's more than Michael Phelps ate every day when he was in peak Olympic form. But here's the coolest thing. These dogs don't wear out. At least, not like we do. Like, if I ran a marathon, I would be super exhausted because my muscles would break down in fatigue. But sled dogs? They have this mysterious alchemy that allows them to burn energy way more efficiently than humans, or even horses, allowing them to go further and faster. All of these superpowers make sled dogs some of the world's greatest athletes. But just like Olympians, they need the right training, the right nutrition, the right physical therapy to perform at their peak. So sled dogs need a lot of time-consuming, expensive care. Starts with the diet. Every morning, Jody or one of the other helpers, they start cooking dinner for the dogs. It's a very stinky soup that simmers all day over a wood stove. It's got cod, fat, rice and cabbage just to add uh, some carbs and it brings more of like a soupy nice stew texture and gets more water into them because they like to eat it they also get kibble in the morning and then these doggo energy bars they're actually frozen bricks of ground beef or cod that jody cuts into snickers bar sized chunks with a bandsaw feeding is like an art and a science if it's colder dogs need more fat um, if they're running longer runs, they'll get more snacks along the way. Of course, um, what goes in goes out. I'm uh, shoveling. That's Marin Kuhn. She's one of the helpers here. Like every day, every morning, and uh, every night, we shovel the poop so that they have a clean uh, space. They also have to clean the dog houses which can be tough because the males will often pee on them, creating these literal glaciers of frozen piss that the helpers then have to knock off with a shovel. It's a lot of pee, a lot of frozen pee. Holy crap. It doesn't help that sometimes the dogs try to eat the frozen pee. No, Falcon, no, no, no. This isn't even the most time-consuming part of the job. That would be the actual training runs. The dogs get so excited before their runs. They're hooked up to the guy line, leaping in the air, banging on their harness. It's like this chaotic symphony rising up to a crescendo. And then the release. Good dog. 
When they're training for a big race like the Iditarod, a musher will run their dogs for 40, 50, 60 miles. Sometimes they're out all day or even overnight. But even when they aren't training for a race, sled dogs still crave exercise. That could be dog sledding, skijoring, which by the way is when a dog pulls you on your cross-country skis, or even just chasing a four-wheeler around. All that to make sure that these dogs are in top shape and not just sitting in a crate, losing their minds. So when the New Zealanders dropped their two dozen Huskies off in February of 2019, Dan and Jody had a lot on their plate. Not only were they taking care of their own crew, they now had the underdogs as well. And those dogs were kind of aggressive. When we initially got them, there was a lot of fighting in the team and bickering and, and you know, j- jockeying for position. And we didn't feel like it would be safe or responsible to put them in pens together. We felt like, you know, they needed to be arranged in such a way that we could take care of them safely. So Dan and Jody built a brand new dog yard. They also had to build new dog houses for the team, and they paid a handler to help out more. And after a few weeks, the underdogs settled down and everyone got into a rhythm. It was just kind of fun. It's spring in Alaska. It's beautiful. The weather's nice. We had all these dogs. We're out mushing every day, you know. Jody was starting to get to know the dog's personalities. And just like any good sitter, she'd send Fleur these little updates. Quill was one of the sweet females that people were really attracted to. So the handler would bring Quill in the cabin and I'd text Fleur and be like, oh, Quill came in the cabin tonight. They're super happy. Or... Um, you know, the dogs, the one that had had surgery and the one that had pneumonia, I sent her some updates on Finn and Smudge, who had the surgery, I believe. You know, so I'd send her little updates on that. And sometimes we'd get a thank you, sometimes we wouldn't. But eventually she stopped responding to any updates on the dogs. And uh, that was kind of one of the first red flags. I'm like, does she not care? But then I thought about like how busy our lives can be. And it was the start of their season. Remember. Fleur and Kurt ran a dog sledding tourism business in New Zealand, and winter was just starting there. So yeah, maybe they were just busy. But then the weeks started turning into months. Um, and the idea is that she's going to be paying you every month, right? right? And Jody hadn't yet gotten a single payment from Fleur. So she sent a message. April 30th. Hey, Fleur, hate to be pushy, but wondering when we can expect a payment. And are you giving her the benefit of the doubt? Okay, maybe she's just a little bit spacey. No, I'm upset, but in general, you get more flies with honey than vinegar. Uh, Later on, I just go full vinegar on her. But at the beginning, I'm like, oh, God, do the right thing. Don't make me be that person. Blur did get back to her with an excuse. She said that Kurt's dad had gotten very sick and was in critical condition at the hospital but that she'd have the payment all sorted out. A few days go by, no money. So Jody bugged her again. And Fleur responded. Oh, I'll be home Friday. Oh, I've been traveling. I'll be home Friday. I, I, she started out really blaming the bank. She said there was some sort of problem with the transfer, a, a missing code. Said that she'll get it fixed, and then sure enough, over the next few weeks, she sent three payments totaling more than $11,000. They were squared up. But then... Fleur missed payments for June, July, August. The debt was racking up and Jody was getting worried. I'm trying to explain to them that, like, 
we are not a wealthy kennel. We did this to help you and now you're hurting us. From New Hampshire Public Radio, that was a clip from the podcast Outside In. It's hosted by Nate Hedgie. Their team includes Taylor Quimby, Rebecca Lavoie, Jack Rodolico, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, and Jessica Hunt. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The year was 1968. In Vietnam, the ongoing war intensified with the start of the Tet Offensive. In France, the country's economy ground to a halt as students rioted and millions of workers took part in a general strike. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. In the U.S., the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy shook the nation. It was a time of unrest and rapid social change around the world, when new ideas were clashing with old traditions. And it was happening here in Canada too. That year, the spirit of the times was brought to life with the opening of an experimental housing project in Toronto called Rochdale College. Part apartment building, part hippie commune, and part school, Rochdale was a hub for Canada's counterculture movement. The building was full of left-wing activists, artists, draft dodgers, and hippies. The podcast Darts and Letters told the story of the building in a recent episode called The Hippie High Rise. The building starts to think of itself as the world. And when I say the building, I mean folks that are really determined to make it work and to live inside of it and to contribute to it in important ways. And once it becomes the world, the focus of your political energy, you're not thinking about how do we overthrow the government or how do we stop the war or whatever. You, you know, those become sort of background thoughts to how do we improve the Rochdale experience? Like, how do we make this place even more accommodating and excellent? That becomes like a real theme by the early 70s. You see the foundation of a medical clinic within the building because the sense is we're a community, we need health care. We see the foundation of, you know, a newspaper within the building. That actually happens quite early on, but it really becomes an important internal glue for the community, an attempt to keep everyone connected. A closed circuit radio and TV uh, station operate for some time. There's a sense of the building as an incubator for great ideas. So educational programs start popping back up here and there. Uh, as people say, look, let, let's get together and we're going we're gonna to get into a room and we're going to talk for five hours about sexual liberation. 
and or we'll talk about um, black power or we'll talk about any of these kind of burgeoning political movements on the outside and see how we can contribute from within but also try to change our situation in here so that we are better reflective of like you know progressive politics i think there's a lot of that kind of for lack of a better word it's like self-help but it's really more like community organizing that's going on within the building and it's quite a fascinating thing Among the most critical initiatives Stuart just mentioned is the health clinic. In jam-packed Rochdale, a portion of the population has spotty access to health care for any number of reasons. Homelessness, drug use, mental health issues, or simply being American. Rochdale had plenty of U.S. draft dodgers. Nikki Morrison, we heard from her earlier about the newspaper. She worked as a nurse prior to Rochdale. With her skills, she's hired to work in the clinic. We started by having doctors that came in from some of the hospitals, but we ended up being able to hire a full-time doctor, Dr. David Collins. And uh, we treated everything from venereal warts to broken bones or whatever. We used to give out prescriptions for birth control pills. While we're here talking to Nikki about healthcare and Dr. David Collins, there's another Nikki Morrison story I want you to hear. Nikki, in 1970... She's the first woman to give birth in Rochdale. It happens in her room in her 14th floor commune. Dr. David Collins delivers the baby. Well, I couldn't have asked for anything better, really. I've witnessed a lot of babies being born. And uh, in hospitals, they'll get your legs up in the stirrups and tie you up there, and you're supposed to deliver a baby. I mean, where I was, I could get up, walk around. I could take a shower. I could... Plus, the commune girls were all there, and they were all helping me out, you know, giving me a little honey or ice cubes or whatever. So I was surrounded by my friends while I was giving birth to this baby, and it was like a perfect experience. As her baby grows into a toddler and more Rochdale babies are born, Nikki and other parents decide to join forces. Us parents got together and started talking about it and decided, wouldn't it be great to have a daycare in the building? I happened to be sitting on the governing council at that time, so I said I'd make a motion to get a space. Went to the next meeting, made the motion, they gave us the space. A large apartment with two bedrooms and a bathroom and a kitchen. We got together as parents and we wrote up a schedule and we were at least three people that would work the unit at least two and sometimes mostly three, depending on how many kids we had at any given time. And we fed them, we took them to the park, we played games, we got lots of things donated to us. Of course, affordable childcare, it's far from the only way that Rochdale is ahead of the progressive curve. In an era when homophobia is rampant in Canada, Rochdale's reportedly a pretty queer-friendly place. I mean, it was more queer than gay in that everybody's personal identities were completely fluid and could change from day to day, let alone uh, leaving behind the norm of, you know, the societal norm. You have to remember, when Rochdale kicks off, homosexuality is still illegal in this country. It's illegal until 1969, and bathhouse raids continue in Toronto into the 80s. But according to A.A. Bronson, Rochdale was a spot where queer people might feel a little more free. There certainly was a variety of sexualities unfolding within Rochdale in different ways, you know. And it was a very non-judgmental environment and a very experimental environment. But Rochdale, it isn't a progressive utopia. 
Despite the ease with which people came together to create a daycare, despite the ease with which people could explore their sexual identity, others say Rochdale had its fair share of regressive attitudes. Scholars and journalists of the counterculture movement have documented that men in that era would get away with all kinds of sexual misconduct, passing it off under the banner of free love. Some former residents say this held true at Rochdale as well. I asked Nikki Morrison about it. I never experienced myself, but then again, I'm a, people didn't mess with me because I was not the kind of a person to mess with, you might say. But there might be other people that might have been intimidated. I'm not saying it didn't happen. There was a lot of people in that building and I, I didn't have eyes on everybody. But Stewart says in his years researching Rochdale, he's heard troubling things. So like, they're talking about, you know, protecting the community. And they're talking about be trying to be progressive around issues of sex and uh, gender. And then they'll also tell you a story or you read a story about, you know, 14 year old girl runaways who have their, basically become um, sexual playthings and bounce around the building for several months before uh, finally like their mom shows up and takes them back home to Regina. You know, and you think, well, how did that, that doesn't square. And I'm sure there's somebody who could try to justify it as around like, that's what free sex is. It's, it's like, we didn't care about, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't, you know, I, that, that doesn't work for me. And those stories you do hear, not infrequently. In his 2011 paper, Off the Streets and Into the Fortress, Stewart documents an organization called Rochdale Women, a group formed to, among other things, fight that misogyny. I tried to find its founders for an interview, but nearly five decades later, it can be tough tracking people down. Residents, they get together to create initiatives like Rochdale Women to address problems they face in the building. So they're essentially Rochdale's grassroots movements. But there is a top level, Rochdale's governance bodies. On a political level, the building is very complicated. You have all kinds of different sort of factions, and some factions might be populated by like one person. Stewart says at first, Rochdale's competing government bodies didn't seem all that interested in the mundane work of effective governance. Politics is the art of the possible, and Rochdale was sort of this place where the impossible was what was exciting. Like, let's try something brand new, something nobody's ever tried before. They tried every different kind of government. They had a, you know, a dictatorship. They had a king for a while. They tried monarchy. Um, they tried a variety of different things, mostly, you know, with this kind of mocking gestural perspective. But I mean, I think that the main issue that they're putting their finger on was that politics seemed rotten on the outside, and they wanted to make it work on the inside, but that meant trying to do things that were different. So that breeds a lot of kind of countercultural thinking, or at least uh, counterintuitive, perhaps, thinking about politics. Ralph Osborne, the head of maintenance we met earlier, he explains Rochdale's government was pretty quickly forced to get practical. You know, uh, how do we pass a health inspection? How do we pay our rent? How do we... How do we get the crashers out? How do we get people who, who can actually pay in? And one of those practical issues was drugs. There is truth to this often repeated line that it was the biggest drug distribution warehouse in North America. I don't know about that, but it certainly was a major hub. Of course, for people living at Rochdale, drugs per se aren't a problem. 
cannabis and psychedelics, they're all part of the radical experiment. And small-time drug dealers are often part of the community. But when speed dealers, connected to biker gangs, make their way in and take over their own section of the floor, it's something else entirely. It was called the drug commune, which is probably a misnomer, but there was just this sense that this one floor behind heavily reinforced closed doors, a group of drug dealers had a ton of product. That product could have ranged from so-called soft drugs all the way up to super hard drugs. So like drugs are coming in from the United States or from Europe or from Africa, wherever, and they're coming into the building through the underground garage, most likely, or through mules walking in and out, because what's a cop gonna do, stop everybody who's walking in and out of the building? And then once the drugs are in the building, they can be processed, they can be, whether they're processing down from pounds into ounces or grams or whatever, or they're processing from even larger amounts down. This was, you know, happening in a really serious way uh, leading into 1970. And the issue at stake wasn't so much the drugs, because everybody in the building was using drugs. It was that these guys were scary. And they were scary because they had some, really had something to lose. From Cited Media, that was the podcast Darts and Letters, with an excerpt from their story, The Hippie High Rise. That story was produced by Mark Apollonio. Their team includes Gordon Kadic, Jay Coburn, and Ren Bangert. There's much more to the story of Rochdale College, and we really recommend listening to that full episode. You can find a link to that and all the other stories on today's show at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Did you play an instrument when you were a kid? I played piano, and I'm using the term played in a very loose sense, very loose. But for many more of the musically inclined, music was a big part of childhood. For Zorana Sadiq, music was an integral part of her upbringing. She grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, the child of Pakistani immigrants, and her love of music began at school. Zorana tells the story in her one-woman play, Mixtape, which she adapted for the CBC podcast, Play Me. In public school, I audition for a special enrichment band camp thing, and I get one of the spots in it for flute. On the first day of the camp, we are stumbling through one of the more tricky sections of a piece. We are making lots of mistakes, and smudges of seconds instead of thirds are up the harmonies and interrupting some of the wide open music with the vaguely bovine sounds of wrong notes, offered and hastily retracted. In response to our less-than-stellar read-through, the conductor, a man who is both kind and mm, searing in his pursuit of the music, does two things I will never forget. First, he lectures us. In school, if you answer just over half of the questions on a test correctly, you will receive a passing grade. In music... 50% accuracy would mean that two out of every four notes in a 4-4 bar are incorrect in some way. 100%. 100% is required for music. And then he has us raise our instruments and he instructs us to mentally play the entire five-minute piece, shaping the notes inside our minds to make the musical thoughts without making a sound. He gives us the upbeat, and he begins to conduct. And I hear it. All of it. 
just as I would like it to sound. I hear the fast running 16th notes just as they should be played like laughter. I hear the tone of my flute rounded and in motion like busy deep water. I stay there in that imaginary world with my fellow phantom orchestra players for five whole minutes while the conductor holds us together with the moving of his arms and the precise bounce of his baton. He conducts to the end, he takes a breath, and then he raises his arms to begin the piece again, and somehow we all know what's expected of us. He gives us the downbeat, and we all play the piece, this time out loud. It's an act of fulfilling something, to pay all of our attention, to tune out any distracting static and hone in on those five lines of the staff. I remember being in that moment and the feeling of kind of obsession just sliding into place. But also this, if I had no beautiful, perfect idea of what my flute line sounded like, then the mental rehearsal would have been useless. It was just there, somehow floating around inside my imagination like a kite right at the moment I had needed it. And I wasn't sure how, but I felt the soft, prodding hand of it. In my childhood bedroom, there's a kind of bay window. I can sit on the ledge of it, pull the white Swiss dot curtains closed, and make a little private sort of domino-shaped place for myself. It's just a thin curtain that seals off the ledge from the rest of the house, but it does the job. If I put my nose to the glass of the window and sing into it, the sound fills up that space like it's the Sydney Opera House. I must look like some hummingbird from the driveway of our house in the suburbs, face hovering close to the glass. I sing little songs into the window pane, and they get served right back to me. The glass is like a mirror, but for sound. I emit those rounded coos, and they're a kind of nourishment for me, like dippers of warm soup. In my house growing up, sound exists in fits and starts, often muted until it's not. Dark greenish-brown carpet, wood paneling, an open-concept house that is closed. I have always been obsessed with sounds. And when you're small, you have little control over what you hear, except for the sounds that you make yourself, of course. And so I make sounds of my choosing to wallpaper the house up in lush, rosy things, you know, thrilling things sometimes, or sometimes just the incantations of hungry exploration. There is a lot to choose from. Duran Duran and yodely sound of music sounds and a, a kind of scat instrumentally thing that is particularly satisfying and silly. Wah, 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 wah. It's uh, something that earns me my class clown status for sure. I am the second daughter my parents have, five years after my sister, a distance that seems large when we are children and small when we become adults. My father is an accountant, my mother a writer. And we'll get to her later. 
So here's what's on the musical menu at my house. On the eight track in the family room, my parents play Neil Diamond, Leonard Cohen, and Cat Stevens. Neil Diamond's album, The Jazz Singer, which curiously is not jazz at all, has captured my imagination. I sing his banner song, America, into the top of a hairbrush, wearing the pink nightie with the yellow cap sleeves that my mother has sewn for me. It's riveting. He looks a bit like my father, Neil Diamond. They all do, but also don't at all. You know what I mean? Leonard Cohen, in the meantime, is sort of droning away, and the songs are sad, and tea and oranges all the way from China seems like something you should be really happy about, but clearly, he is not. Also, I'm pretty sure that's talking, and not singing. My mother loves Leonard Cohen for his words. His poetic intellect. I don't think she even hears his voice. I think it's like she sees surtitles on the wall of our living room when she's listening to Suzanne. My father wants to be Leonard Cohen. In that way that, you know, I want to be... Annie. The record player upstairs is sort of the realm of the female, actually. Mostly my sister's records and my mother's. There are not a lot of women on the 8-track downstairs, except for the tantalizing thread of Barbara Streisand's vocal on You Don't Bring Me Flowers Anymore in her duet with Neil Diamond. Do you remember that song? That song is a lot of things for me. It's a time machine to the parquet floors of the family room, to the small amount of space I took up as a child, to my wishes for my parents' unhappy marriage to the recognition of what feelings sound like when they become music notes. From CBC Podcasts and Expect Theatre, that was Play Me, with an excerpt from the one-woman play mixtape. It was written and performed by Zorana Sadiq. The Play Me team includes Laura Mullen, Chris Tolley, Thomas Ryder Payne, Anna Ashate, and Mary Chris Rivera. And that's our show. I hope you heard a new podcast to add to your queue. If you want to know more about any of the podcasts you heard on today's episode, head to our website, cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. And speaking of your podcast queue, have you added us? You can find our show on the CBC Listen app or follow us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we'd love if you could rate and review us while you're there. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva, with technical support from Austin Pomeroy. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.